This first reading is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And the second reading is from Isaiah chapter 2. We're reading the whole chapter. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to the work their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw to the moles and bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans but who have a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, I 
I left home to go and start uni when I was 17 years old. So I, I moved a, a four-hour drive away from my home in Kayama to Wagga to study pharmacy. And I didn't know a single person at the uni. I, I didn't know a single person in the, the whole town for that matter. And I was unleashed on the world at that point, never to return to live at home again. You know, I, I think my mum, she would have been about my age when I, um, when I left home. She would have been about 43 or something like that. And I've never really thought much about it before, but recently I, I've been wondering how she felt. You know, did she think I was ready to be unleashed on the world? Did she feel positive about the world and, and where it was heading in 1998? Or did she feel worried about the world and, and worried about me? As a, a typical kind of teenage male, I never really thought much about my mother's emotions. <laughs> I didn't really think about how she felt about it from, at all, really. And from my perspective, I was young and optimistic. I didn't really care what the world was doing. I was sure that, that we could make a difference. I was confident that in my generation, we could bend the world to be the way, the kind of place it should always have been. If anything, as a kind of 17-year-old leaving home, I thought, don't worry, Mum, we've got this. But 25 years later, I feel a little bit different. I feel a bit more like, maybe we don't got this. <laughs> I'm a, a parent myself now, and it's, um, it's not really that long till I, I launch my four kids out into the world. You know, every good mum, every good dad, they, you want to see your kids out in the world confident and secure and equipped to face the joys but also the challenges of the world. You don't want your kids to be anxious or cynical or paralysed by fear. But neither do you want your kids to be kind of sheltered, naive and vulnerable. It's a difficult balance. It's kind of one that's hard to get right. And I've got to admit, I have these moments where I worry for my kids and I worry about the world that we're handing them. Because unlike my 17-year-old self, I don't think it's easy to make a difference anymore. I think we have far less control than we even think we do. I feel like I'll be saying to my kids as, as they leave home, goodbye and, you know, good luck ever being able to buy a house. In fact, good luck even being able to rent a house. I guess that means they might not be leaving home after all. They'll probably still be 43 and living at home. But I feel like if they do manage to leave home, I'll be launching them into a world where climate change is more and more of a threat. I just can't believe that since 1998 to this point, what's happened in the world? The way so many creatures are now threatened with extinction that weren't before. I feel like I'll be sending them out into a world where war and, and the, the threat of nuclear war is, is much closer than it was back then. I feel like I'll be releasing them into a world where we're all kind of guinea pigs for Google and TikTok, and chat GPT-4. You know, in the, in the 90s, we thought wealth was supposed to just keep on increasing. 
we'd just conquered the hole in the ozone layer. Do you remember that? The Cold War was over. And technology, technology was going to be our saviour beyond 2000. But now all that kind of thinking seems naive. Now I realise this sounds like I'm having a, a very public kind of midlife crisis up here on Mother's Day at all day, of all days. But do you get my point? The, the problems in this world are not easily fixed. They run deep. They're complex. They tend to resurface and resurface and resurface. And what we see today is that they ultimately all grow from the same root. What we're going to see today in the Bible, in that part of the Bible that was read just before, is we are not the solution to all of this. God is. We're going to see that we're actually a part of the problem and the root of that problem is pride. And finally, we're going to see that we can experience God's solution, but it's only if we can humble ourselves. We're looking at the the book of Isaiah, which was just read. We're up to chapter 2. But just before we we get into it, let me remind you what's happening in Isaiah's world because we need to understand it to understand what's going on. Isaiah is is speaking to people in Judah. You can see them there as that red dot. And especially he's speaking to their capital, Jerusalem. It's about 750 BC. And they're coming off a long period of prosperity. And their country, even though it was so small, it had done quite well. Because the big bully countries around it had been very busy with their own problems. Egypt, down in the south, it was the old superpower that was getting weaker and weaker. And Assyria up there was a new emerging superpower, but it was busy sorting out far-off conflicts in the north. And so in the power vacuum, Judah, it had been flourishing. But all of a sudden, the tide was turning. Assyria had dealt with those who were keeping it down, and so now they had the luxury of of turning their eyes further afield, and naturally they turned them toward Egypt. But even to get to Egypt, down to Egypt, it meant controlling a narrow strip of land, you know, with the sea on the one side and the desert on the other side. And that narrow strip of land was Judah. Can you see the, the crisis that, that they were facing? In the World War II, you know, Switzerland could kind of hide behind its mountains and, and stay neutral. But Judah couldn't do that. They're, they're caught between Egypt and Assyria. They just wanted life to go back as it was, kind of comfortable and easy and luxurious. But they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And so do they put their, their hope in Egypt and an alliance that was forming between Egypt and northern Israel and Damascus? Or do they put their hope in Assyria, which would basically mean becoming slaves to their taxes and their religion? Both options are, are a huge gamble. Both options really should you know, come with the kind of warning that says, you win some, you lose more. Neither of them actually are guaranteed at all. And it's into this mess that Isaiah is speaking. And he's saying to them, hey, there's a third option. 
there's always been a third option. He says they could put their hope not in Assyria or Egypt, but in God. And he says in the book of Isaiah, every other option is guaranteed to end in disaster. But in this book, Isaiah also says to them that he knows, God knows, it's actually the one option they're never going to choose. That's why Isaiah, if you've read through it, it can be a bit of a depressing read, can't it? Because they put their hope in the wrong place and no matter what he says or does, they just won't budge. And so Isaiah tells them their future holds disaster. But actually, you would have noticed that our chapter today, it starts far more positively than that. It starts with Isaiah pointing them to a different kind of of future. And this brings us to our first point for today. They are not the solution, but God is. They're not the solution, but God is. Have a look at verse 2. Isaiah says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So, as we've seen in their day, all nations are streaming to Israel for war. But Isaiah says in the future, God will change that. So, nations will stream to Israel for worship. In many cultures back then, um, mountains represented the meeting place between the gods and people. And Isaiah, he says in, in the future, all the nations would stop looking to their gods and instead they'd start looking to Israel's God only. It's kind of ironic considering that at that time, Jerusalem wasn't even looking to her God. But the future that Isaiah sees is one where absolutely all people want to know God and want to know his ways. This is God's solution for the world. Because look at what Isaiah says it will result in in verse 4. He, God, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. It must have been hard for them in their context to, to picture this kind of universal peace. It must have been hard to imagine the nations being interested in God, especially when they weren't even that interested. But God tells them the solution they need is not Egypt or Assyria. It's him. They need his plan for the world. They need the future that he is bringing about. Outside the the UN headquarters in New York is is this statue, uh, which is a man beating a sword into a plowshare. It's kind of an an awesome picture of of Isaiah too. But in that context, you know, there outside the UN headquarters, what is it really saying? It feels a little bit like it's saying, don't trust Assyria, don't trust Egypt, but do trust in the UN as a force for bringing about this kind of peace. If only, you know, if only the UN could bring about this kind of peace. But sadly, what what history has shown is that the UN can't guarantee this kind of peace. 
You know, at the moment, no one seems to be beating their military equipment into agricultural equipment. In China, in the US, even in Australia, if anything, military spending has just gone up and up. The efforts that, you know, that we make for, for peace as a world are so important, but they're not going to bring the kind of peace that Isaiah has in mind here, the kind of peace that this world really needs. History shows us again and again that we haven't found the solution yet. And the truth is, we're not going to find the solution because we are not the ultimate solution. But God is. And Isaiah gives us a picture here of where God is taking all things. And so Isaiah says to them, in in light of this future, verse 5, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, all the nations in the future will one day come wanting to walk in the paths of God. So surely God's own people in their present then, present time then surely they should want to walk in the light of the lord shouldn't they but did you notice the way as sally was reading that the tone changes quite massively quite sadly because at this point isaiah moves from describing the future to describing their present and look at what he says in verse six he says you lord have abandoned your people the descendants of Jacob. Now, this is quite a shocking thing to say. If you know God, what he's like, then you'll know that one of his most key characteristics is his faithful love. You know, who is God? When God reveals himself, who does he reveal himself to be? He says, the Lord, the Lord. And it's his faithful love is the thing that he shows. That he stands by his people. I've got some um, friends who've got four kids. And three of their kids are the most genuine, generous, caring kind of people that you could imagine. But one of their kids, right from childhood, he's been tragically nothing but self-centered, narcissistic, Violent to them all, even. Manipulative, a liar. He held someone up at at knife point outside an ATM. He's done time in prison. He seems to have some kind of narcissistic personality disorder or something like that. And over the years, I've just been completely astounded at the love and patience that his friends have shown to him. Every weekend when he was in prison, they would drive four hours there four hours back to be the only people in the world who would visit him. When he's been on the street in Sydney, they've spent days, weeks searching for him. When they wouldn't fund his drug habit and he got abusive with them, somehow they managed to keep still being there for him. They loved him through pain and heartache across decades. And you know, if one day I heard that they'd given up that they decided just to let him go and abandoned him. What do you think I would conclude about my friends? Would I conclude that they're fickle and cruel and cold? 
No way. I would conclude that after holding on for three decades, they'd probably held on for a decade longer than anyone else I know or could, have, could imagine could hold on. I'd conclude that the problem had always been with their son and that the problem still lay with him. And it's like that here. If God really is abandoning his people, like Isaiah says here, that tells us not that God is fickle or cruel or cold. It tells us just how bad his people were treating him. And so far we've seen they are not the solution, but God is. But next we see they are part of the problem. They are part of the problem because in their pride, they push God aside. In this next section, we, we see that they're full of all sorts of things that they shouldn't be. And what we see is that the root of all these things is pride. Have a look at what they're full of in verse 6. They're full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. You know, these are people who've been chosen by God to be his people. These are people that he personally wants to know, people he wants to live with there in Jerusalem. And they're they're full of spirituality, but they have no time and no place for him. Now, I can't help but feel that 2,700 years later, that this could describe our city just as much as their city. I mean, we're a country full of spirituality. But are we full of time for God? I don't think so. I think many people in our country think it doesn't really matter what kind of spirituality you have. I think many people think God should be happy with us having any type of spirituality at all. But it's quite a strange way of thinking. You know, I'm married. And do you reckon my wife would think it was great if I had all the time in the world for women but no time for her. Of course not. So why would we expect that God would think that it's, it's great that we have all the time in the world for spirituality and no time in the world for him? We might be full of spirituality, but if, if we're not interested in who God is, if we're not interested in letting him speak for himself, God's not happy with that. That's pride. Arrogance. That's being full of it. Have a look at what else they're full of in verse 7. Their land is, is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. They're full of money and, and material things back then. But they're not full of true riches. Now God's he's not against them enjoying the good life. Later on in Isaiah 55 verse 1, he says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine. And milk without money and without cost. They don't even need money for the good life. They just need him. But instead of looking for him, looking to him, they've looked to money and treasures for their comfort and joy and security. And they've been willing to trample on others to get what they want. And again, 2,700 years later, couldn't this be talking about our city? Is it God that we pursue? Or is it money that we pursue? 
Isn't money far more real to us as a city than God? You know, which is remarkable if you think about it. You know, in our city, in our country, little plastic rectangles or binary displaying on a screen, that is more real to us, more demanding to us, more desirable to us than God. That is remarkable when you think about it. And we might be full of money and full of material things, but if we don't count God as our our greatest comfort and security and joy, God's not happy with that. That's pride, arrogance. That's being full of it. Look at what else they're full of in the second half of verse 7. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Horses and chariots is kind of like the the military technology of their day. It's kind of like saying their land is is full of tanks or nuclear submarines, if you like. The point is, they're putting their trust, their hope for peace in their own military might. And again, it's really not all that different today. Don't we look to our military spending and our alliances for security? Don't we think these things are what is going to save us? But they won't save us. Why would we think a world in an arms race is going to be a great and safe place to live? In God's mind, again, that's, that's pride, that's arrogance. That's being full of it. And finally, we see what else they're full of in verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Not only have they abandoned God, they've replaced him in their lives. And the replacement is laughable. They've replaced him with stuff they've made. It would be laughable, at least, if it wasn't so sad. You know, imagine you you try to come home from work one day and, and, and the key's not working. And the kids call out through the window, go away, we've replaced you. We've changed the locks on you. And you're like, with what? And they say, with chat GPT-4. It's so much more helpful than you. See ya. Like, it's ridiculous. Can chat GPT-4 cook them dinner and love them and fight for them? Maybe in some terrifying upgrades to come, but not yet. But that's what they'd done with God. They'd replaced him with, with the work of their hands, with the work of their fingers And it would be laughable, except it's so painful to God. And again, is this so different to our city today? You know, we might not have replaced God with literal idols that we bow down to, but in his place, we give our love and our service to all sorts of things that we've made. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah says God feels about what we do. In chapter 2, verse 12, he writes, Be appalled at this, you heavens. And shudder with great honor, horror, sorry, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Listen to what John Piper says about this. He says, tell me then, what is evil? The definition of evil, that which appalls the universe that causes the angels of God to say, no, it can't be. 
What is it? What is evil? It is looking at God, the fountain of all satisfying living water, and saying, no thank you. And turning instead to the television, to sex, parties, booze, money, prestige, a house in the suburbs, a vacation, a new computer program, and saying yes to those things. That's insane. And it causes all heaven to be appalled. But that's what our pride leads us to do. And because of their pride, Isaiah tells them that a day is coming when their pride will be humbled. You know, look at verse 9 again. He says, so people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Verse 11, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord will be exalted in that day. And he says the same sort of thing in, in verse 12 and then again in verse 17. And in verse 20, he says on that day that the things that we've replaced God with, that they'd replaced God with, they'll cast aside as, as being completely unable to help them, useless. And everything we've seen so far is not only true for them, actually, it's true for us as well. They are not the solution. We are not the solution. But God is. They are part of the problem. We are part of the problem. Because our pride, in our pride, we all push God aside. And this brings us to our last point. Because if we're going to be a part of that, that awesome future that God has in mind, if they're going to be a part of that future, it means dealing with our pride. This is our last point. Experiencing God's solution means humbly walking in the light of the Lord. In this whole chapter, Isaiah only gives two instructions in this part. In verse 5, he says, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then in verse 22 at the end, he says, Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Now, both of these are about humbling ourselves. The first one says, walk in the light of the Lord, not in our own light. Humble yourself. The second says, trust in God, not in, not in humans. The, the whole chapter is telling us, humble yourself. If we want to be a part of the future that God is bringing, we have to humble ourselves and look to him. It's like we heard in that other reading that Josh did for us in, in 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This isn't something we just do once. This is something that we keep on doing because this is what it means to walk in his paths. Now, last week I, um, I told you that I was, was struck at the coronation of King Charles, just how different was the coronation of Jesus. You know, Jesus' coronation was not on a throne like that. It was on a cross. Jesus' crown was not made of, of heavy gold with jewels from far-off conquered lands. His crown was twisted thorns into his head. And Jesus' regalia was not swords and robes and riches and opulence. His regalia was wounds and nakedness in every way pretty much jesus coronation was just so different the one person who 
who had every reason for pride. He left it behind to humble himself and he did it for you. He did it so that he could win a future for you of eternal peace by taking our judgment on himself. He did it to, to win for us a future where we could say to God, teach us your ways that we may walk in your paths. Do you know that there's only one thing in all the universe that could cut you off from God? Just one thing. And do you know what it is? It's pride. If we refuse this humble, gentle king who goes to the cross for us, then we refuse God's mercy. We refuse God's grace. And our pride will take us to face his judgment alone, thinking we'll be right, thinking we've got this when we don't got this. If you've never humbled yourself before God, why, what is stopping you from doing that? Today even. Is it pride? Now most of us here, you know, we've, we've though, we are those who've seen that we need to humble ourselves. We, we've seen pride is, is not going to get us anywhere but facing God's judgment. But the thing about human pride is it's not something that you can just deal with once and for all time. It keeps trying to get a handle on us. Do you feel it? Pride expresses itself in a, a thousand new ways. And religious pride is, is probably the worst way that it expresses itself. And we're not immune to that. You know, whoever we are, whether we, whether we are not at all interested in God, we should see clearly that it's pride that pushes him away. You know, if we're partly interested, we should see that it, it's pride that keeps Jesus at arm length. If we're a new Christian or, or we've been a Christian for decades, it's pride that keeps trying to push God out of certain parts of our lives. Our pride tries to limit our love and, and limit our obedience. It's pride that tries to smother the joy that we can have in him the security that we can have in him, the comfort that we can have in him. And what this means, if, if we want to walk in God's paths, we, we cannot be a people who tolerate pride. God holds the solution for this world, not us. God holds the solution for even the way that we've contributed to the mess of this world. And if we want to be a part of what he's doing, it means humbling ourselves before him. And it means going on, walking humbly with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are just so thankful for the kind of God that you are. That you do not want to abandon us. That you have made every effort to call us into the future that you want to create for us. That you want us to come to you and receive every good thing without money, without cost. Your heart is overwhelmingly for us so much so that you even sent your own son to die in our place in order that we could be a part of that future lord help us to see the way that pride threatens to cut us off from you threatens to cut us off from wanting you in our lives and threatens 
to cut us off from wanting the sacrifice that Jesus made in our place to be for us. Lord, help us to humble ourselves and come to you. And help us, Lord, to go on humbly walking with you, learning your ways, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.